0: Good Sunday morning! This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts & Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago-area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll sit down with the director of a fascinating new documentary that illuminates the largely unknown story of one of Chicago's wealthiest figures and the underground operation he used to build an empire. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal will join me to review a Red Orchid Theater's world premiere, The Malignant Ampersands, and later in the show I'll check in with the former Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events Commissioner Mark Kelly to talk about Chicago's Arts in the Dark Parade. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. The MacArthur's, Wrigley's, and Fields. Chicagoans likely recognize the names of the city's historically wealthiest families. But are you familiar with the Jones family? From the south of Chicago. Yeah. A new documentary that made its world premiere at the Chicago International Film Festival shines a light on the largely unknown story of a group of brothers who made untold millions through an underground numbers operation. The film King of Kings Chasing Edward Jones highlights the rise and fall of the Chicago based family while also exploring larger socioeconomic, ethical, and race related themes. Edward Jones and his two brothers were known as policy kings. They operated a lottery-like gambling operation called Policy that largely catered to African Americans on the south side of Chicago. The illegal enterprise was immensely successful. The Jones brothers, who were African American, amassed a multi-million dollar fortune in the 30s. And it was that massive amount of money that also drew some unwanted attention and eventually led to the family's fall from grace. King of Kings won the Chicago Award at this year's Chicago International Film Festival. The documentary comes from Paris based filmmaker Harriet Marin Jones, the granddaughter of the titular Edward Jones. I recently caught up with Jones ahead of the film's world premiere, which took place Wednesday night at the Chicago History Museum. Growing up, did you know a lot about your grandfather, Edward
1: Jones? No, actually I didn't know. I heard about him, of course, but my mother, when she would talk about her father, she would always tell us what an amazing man he was, what a gentleman, but she would never go into details. We had no idea that he had been once one of the richest men in the United States. We had no idea that he was in the policy business, that he had been kidnapped, that he had gone to jail. We had no idea of all this. Uh, It was at a time, I think, when uh, parents didn't tell much to their children, so I think my mother didn't know a lot of what actually happened uh, when uh, she was growing up. But I also think that there were a lot of things that she did leave out on purpose because She didn't want us to know about it. We were growing up in Europe, so maybe it didn't feel that relevant.
0: And then when did you start to learn more about him?
1: Well, actually, I learned about my grandfather, what he actually do in life, etc. When I moved to Chicago, when I was 17 years old, I had graduated from high school and I went uh, my first year in Loyola University here in Chicago and there I met someone who is in the film, his name is Nick Ford, Nicholas Ford, and uh, I was 17, he was 19, and one day he came to pick me up. Uh, I used to live with my grandmother, Lydia Jones, and we lived in the apartment, Lake Point Tower. And he came to pick me up and he said, are you related to Edward Jones by any chance? And I said, yes, actually, he's my grandfather. And he was like, wow, do you know who your grandfather was? And I said, well, my grandfather? And he said, no, the whole story behind. And he's the one who started telling me about my family history, about above all, what Edward Jones at here in Chicago and from there on I started doing research
0: you ended up studying film at what point did you start to think my own grandfather's story could make for a compelling documentary
1: well i come from the fiction world so i directed a dozen films i did a feature film but it's only later on that i decided at one point that i wanted to do a documentary i always in terms of fiction world. So I would have thought of doing a movie or a TV series before a documentary. But at one point it became very obvious for me that what I wanted to do was first a documentary like that I would set the story straight, really based on actual facts, tell the real story of Edward Jones, of the policy kings, of my grandmother, the cotton club, Josephine Baker, with real pictures, with real people that had met them, etc. So that was very important to me to say the real story. And then once the documentary is done, work on a TV series.
0: That still still could be?
1: Well, that will definitely be. Um, I've started working on the book over five years ago, so the book is almost finished, and after the idea was to do a TV series.
0: The scope of the project began to expand as Jones dove deeper into the research of her family history. So when you started the project, I'm sure you had like this idea of what it would become and then you start working on it, did that change as you started doing more research and talk to people?
1: Well definitely the fact that I started interviewing a lot of people opened my eyes because even though I had learned a lot doing research, spending time at the Chicago Library, at the Library of Congress, etc. I had gathered, I don't know how many newspaper articles. I had found a lot of information. But talking to people really changed my perspective, because I did over 50 interviews, uh, speaking with someone like Quincy Jones, who had met my grandfather. His father used to work for my... Uh, grandfather mm. speaking with people like Timuel Black who passed last year but who was such an amazing man a historian and activist he had met my grandfather speaking with the former cabs speaking with churches speaking with historians really gave me very interesting perspective and views and I learned so much not only on my family but on Chicago and on American history
0: let's listen to a clip from the new documentary, King of Kings.
1: African-Americans
2: in Chicago, particularly on the south side, had a rich tradition of casino gambling, dice games, card games. Before the advent of policy, while policy was in its infancy, black organized crime within the black community in the form of illicit gambling was already thriving.
1: Uncle Mac, he was working in a policy office So he was telling my father, wow, you know, it's not bad that. And so my father said, okay. And my father, he understood numbers.
3: You bet a nickel on a number and it comes out, you might win $5. A lot of people might put $10 on one number. And if that one number falls out, then they're picking up $500. They're picking up $1,000.
0: That was a clip from the documentary King of Kings Chasing Edward Jones, and we heard from some of the interview subjects talking about the game of policy. And the film highlights a lot of pieces of local history that don't get a lot of attention. Jones puts a big spotlight on policy, the numbers operation that her grandfather used to accumulate a massive fortune in the 30s and 40s, though many Chicagoans likely aren't familiar with the term.
1: The policy business was a numbers game, but at the time it was illegal. Uh, It was uh, an illegal numbers game controlled and operated by African-Americans, and uh, basically it was like a form of a raffle, a lottery, and uh, eventually the policy business was taken over by the mob and years later it was taken over by uh, the government and it was turned into the state lottery. So it's definitely a lottery. People would go and bet three numbers. There were 78 numbers. They would choose three numbers. And if the numbers would come out, they would win $5, $10, $100. The thing with the policy business is that you could, it was called a nickel and dime business, Operation, because people would place like a nickel ten cents a quarter, and they could make enough money to be able to buy dinner or to be able to pay the rent if the three numbers came out Sure.
0: And I think you mentioned at the end of the the film that it was challenging finding information about policy it's almost like it's been kind of like buried?
1: I had a lot of problems finding information on the policy uh, business in uh, let's say the Chicago History Museum or uh, places like that because actually there is absolutely nothing on it. Which is very strange because it's really part of Chicago's history. So thank God there were still people alive that would share their knowledge about it and uh, who really not only remembered it because Uh, The policy business was really, really huge in the south side of Chicago. I mean, if you think of it, the south side was really thriving in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Everybody played the policy business. Everybody played the policy. Like everybody, not everybody, but so many people today play the state lottery.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Harriet Marin Jones, the filmmaker behind the new documentary King of Kings Chasing Edward Jones, which just premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival.
1: The fact that the world premiere is here in Chicago is absolutely fantastic because there is no other place than Chicago that this film should premiere because it was really the town of my grandfather. Hopefully, I hope that the film will find a distributor. Like you said, I financed the film on my own, since it was for me such an important story to be told. Uh, But now, we'll see what happens. We shall see. uh, I think it's just the beginning.
0: Jones has several connections to Chicago and attended Loyola University for a year as a college freshman. But it wasn't until she started working on this project when she started to understand the city her grandfather called home for much of his life
1: well actually uh, my mother was born in chicago and she lived in chicago for many years before moving to mexico And actually, I grew up in Europe and lived most of my life in Europe. That's why I have such a terrible French accent. But uh, I lived in Chicago for one year, like I mentioned earlier. And uh, actually, when I was living, I was living downtown, and I never went to the South Side while I was living in uh, Chicago. And it's only when I started doing all these interviews, when I started working on my grandfather's story, that I started spending time in the South Side which was absolutely fascinating because it's a world that I had no idea of.
0: So your grandfather came here with his family and then found success here with his, his policy business and then your mom grew up here i know your grandfather ended up leaving twice for different reasons but did he like chicago do you get a sense that he enjoyed being here
1: i think my grandfather really loved chicago as you know he came from mississippi uh, they received threats from the Ku Klux Klan, and so they had to leave the south and they moved north like so many african americans during the great migration And actually perhaps that's the best thing that could have happened to them to come to Chicago because that's where he started, he didn't invent it, but that's where he turned the nickel and dime operation into this huge multi-million dollar empire. I think he was very into Chicago. I mean, he invested back into the community, he created thousands of jobs, he helped a lot of legitimate businesses to uh, get started. He opened the Ben Franklin store, which was a huge department store in 1937 that uh, used to sell absolutely everything for african-americans at a time when segregation was very strong so they had the same opportunities basically than downtown
0: i only asked that because it seems like he was really happy in those times that they moved to Paris and then Mexico City.
1: Well, I think that he was very happy in Paris. They only lived there for 2 years and then they had to leave Paris because of World War 2. World War 2 started, so they had to come back to Chicago and they had to leave Chicago and move to Mexico. I don't know how happy he was in Mexico. I think he liked Mexico because he had this uh legitimate business that he was pursuing but I think he missed Chicago that's really it was not his hometown but it was his town you know Mm -hmm. that's where he grounded his business etc
0: you mentioned Quincy Jones who I'm a huge fan of his and so I see him pop up on screen and I was just like whoa no relation to Edward Jones but same neighborhood
1: I'm a huge fan of Quincy Jones myself, actually each time I go to Los Angeles I see Quincy. Quincy is from the south side of Chicago, he grew up there and his father used to work for my grandfather, he used to be a carpenter, so basically when I started doing this documentary Quincy was one of the first person I contacted and I said, listen Quincy, will you agree to do an interview? And he said yes immediately. So I flew to Los Angeles and uh, I did this amazing interview. You see him pop in and out of the film, but actually I interviewed him for over two hours and everything he said was fascinating. I mean, he's such a great man.
0: He's lived such a a life, but he had clear memories of of your grandfather and your family.
1: He did, because actually he met my grandfather when he was just a young kid, and he had cut my mother's hair, and uh, basically his father said, oh my God, do you know who her father is? He says it really well in the film. But that's how he met my grandfather the first time, and then he met him through the years, and he came back to Mexico years and years later when he was already famous, Uh, he had already, played the band in uh, Europe, etc., and my grandfather still remembered him.
0: Different people in your family make brief appearances in the the film, The Next Generation, and your mom and your sisters. How do they feel about the film now that it's done?
1: Well, uh, doing this film was very interesting because I got to interview at least uh, 40 people from my family we have a very big extended family and uh, it's very interesting because a lot of them had no idea of who Edward Jones was or knew very very little so asking questions it was like oh wow oh my god he has been kidnapped oh really did he go to jail they had no clue My mother, of course, knew, but like I said at the beginning of the interview, there is so much that she shared with us.
0: For Jones, the story of her grandfather is personal, but she's hoping audiences connect with some of the broader themes connected with this piece of almost forgotten Chicago history.
1: I hope that when people will see uh, this documentary, they will be very proud of their history. Quincy in the film says, to know where you're going, you need to know where you come from, know your history, know your past. And I really hope that the people that will see this film will find out and learn a lot of things on their history. I don't know if a lot of uh, people know that African-Americans were behind the state lottery, for instance. And there are many other things that I think they will learn watching this film. And uh, For me, it was very important to do it as a documentary, but to treat it as a thriller. The idea was to make it very entertaining, so it wouldn't be boring. That's why I mixed archival images, animation, uh, newspaper articles, interviews, etc. So it's like I'm taking the audience in a roller coaster ride, basically with so many things happening, worth of a great Hollywood film, I think.
0: And we just scratched the surface because we want people to go see the film for themselves, but yeah, it gets into a lot more. Harriet, thanks so much for making time to, to talk with me.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
2: A city most forget. I'm in Chicago.
0: That's Harriet Marin-Jones, the filmmaker behind the new documentary, King of Kings Chasing Edward Jones. It premiered this past week at the Chicago International Film Festival. Jones is now seeking distribution... Hopefully, we'll see a future screening pop up in the months ahead. I'll keep you posted here on the art section. In the meantime, you can find more information at en.kingofkings film.com. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday morning with us. If you tune into the Arts Section every week, make sure to visit the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links to go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartssection.org. And you are listening to The Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now by the Dueling Critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanal. Good morning.
4: Good, good morning. morning, Gary. Good morning. I hope everyone is enjoying this little
2: Indian summer spell we're having. It's I
0: delightful. Know, our last grasp of warm weather. Yeah, probably. Probably going to get a lot cooler in the coming weeks, but it's Chicago. Feels like it's been a while since we talked about a Red Orchid Theater. The Old Town Neighborhood-based theater is presenting a world premiere called The Malignant Ampersands. And if you're a cinephile, the title might bring to mind Orson Welles's legendary 1942 film The Magnificent Ambersons*. That's not an accident. A Red Orchid is promoting the play as a, quote, very unofficial sequel to The Magnificent Ambersons*. The Malignant Ampersands was written by ensemble member Brett Nevew, and the production is directed by theater artist Dado. I'm curious to hear what the dueling critics thought about the connection between the Ambersons and the Ampersands. But first, Carrie, we'll start with you. And we were talking before we came on air. It sounds like the play hit you in a personal way, uh, at least parts of it.
4: I mean, and this is not the tiny violins moment for me, but uh, there, there's a, a, a fair state of cancer that's kind of devastated my family in the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so. Um, so I, I don't expect that to be everyone's experience, and I certainly hope it isn't. But it certainly made the play land with me in a way that I don't know it would uh, for other people. Um The malignant Ampersands, the Ampersands are a family, contemporary family, that much like the Ampersands in the Orson Welles film, which was itself based on a Booth Tarkington Pulitzer Prize winning novel, uh, they've fallen from, from, from glory. You know, they used to live in a big house in town, they were prominent, and now they're struggling with various kinds of cancer, with poverty. It's not even clear in the play how they're related to each other, except that they're all sort of the scraps and dregs of what's left of this once glorious clan. Um, it's a very opaque play, and I don't know that everyone will appreciate that. That tends to be something Nebu does as a playwright. This one perhaps even more so than other works of his I've seen his 2002 play Eric LaRue has just recently been filmed by his longtime friend and and creative collaborator Michael Shannon and that's coming out soon and that one is a little bit more straightforward although also dark he tends to write dark (laughs) so I'm putting all these caveats out there but all of that said I have to say this play sort of worked for me in a very clammy way at capturing what it feels like to be in the midst of just a ridiculous and absurd amount of disease and death in your family. Jonathan I'm dying no pun intended to hear what you thought about the malignant ampersand? Well,
2: I will tell you that, Carrie, as you know, and I think Gary, as you at least suspect, I've been a theater critic for quite a few decades, so it's not often that a play knocks me for a loop, but the malignant ampersand certainly did and left me cold on the canvas. I don't have a clue what it's about, and I can understand your personal connection to it, as you explain it, but the play isn't actually about the nature of being ill or suffering diseases. That's like merely a given rather than a territory that is explored. Um, I, 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 I don't have a clue what this play is about or how I'm supposed to take it, although I think it's meant to be darkly comic. I admire hometown playwright Brett Neveu, Uh, He's had many successes, but this play bewilders me. And I think part of the problem is that it's been positioned, Gary, as you said, as an unofficial sequel to The Magnificent Ambersons. Uh, Well, I do happen to know the movie, and The Malignant ampersands has no direct reference to it beyond the fact that both the film and this play portray three generations of a family. And, yes, uh, the ampersands, as you indicated, Kerry, talk about uh, the long-ago family wealth and glamour a century ago. And that also fits the circumstances of the Orson Welles film. But that's as close a connection as you're going to find. Um, uh, you know, I found the ampersands of this play to be a wretched family, uh, <laughs> not just living on limited means, uh, the, the, the borderline of poverty and not just suffering from debilitating illnesses or conditions, but you know, none of them seem particularly bright to me. <laughs> uh, the hero is 20-something Gabe Ampersand, who is the only healthy family member and spends most of his time shuttling the others to and from doctor's appointments. Uh, there's also a tall, gaunt, supernatural shadow figure, which appears several times in, in the play. And this figure and Gabe are involved in some inexplicable power exchange in which Gabe, uh, as as I understand it, sacrifices himself for the good of the family. I don't want to say any more, or it could be uh, a spoiler. Um, I'm taken by the fact that so many of the character names seem to be symbolic. Gabe, presumably short for Gabriel, as in the Archangel, Gabriel. Summer, ampersand, West, ampersand, hiker, ampersand, all seem to be symbols, but I can't explain the symbolism. Carrie,
4: yeah. um, you make more of this than I do? I think a little bit. I mean, one thing I did want to bring up in terms of the magnif- uh, Magnificent, um, uh, uh, magnificent Amberson, sorry, um, I almost said ampersand, <laughs> is that they, um, that, that film is famous for having a lost ending or a lost cut. Uh, The story for those who are not cinephiles is that um, Wells went off to film another ill-fated movie called It's All True in Brazil. His original 131-minute cut of this film that he intended to be his masterpiece was slashed, in his absence by the studio to 88 minutes so there's this holy grail of trying to find like what is the perfect cut what is what do 12s really intend yeah. in a way i think that's kind of what this family is looking for so it's a, it, it, this may be me getting way too meta as i you know as i said i think this play landed with me in a way that i don't expect it will with a lot of other people but i think there's that sense that they're searching for some key some clue um I agree with you, Jonathan, that they seem like very limited people. And I think for me, that's part of the nature of disease. When you become somebody who is mostly there to shuttle people around to medical appointments and you're mostly there to keep track of the litany of, you know, prescriptions and everything else that's going on, um, you, you find bits of your soul kind of escaping you. You find yourself kind of feeling like you're running on just, you know, some sort of auto energy. Um, So that is relatable to me. I don't think that Nevu makes it easy for you to relate to that. So this is not an easy play, and I will absolutely um, say that. But I I, I was struck by the idea that if people know, even if people haven't seen The Magnificent Ambersons, if they follow film history at all, they know that for years it's kind of been like, what if we ever found that cut? Oh, we think they found it. No, they didn't find it. It's kind of in this ongoing mystery of cinema. So I think that kind of sense of mystery and search is also something that the characters are looking for, but they can't really find it. The ending in particular, one of the characters who um, we have assumed has, you know, has has left this mortal coil, comes back, seems to really throw everything You know into a topsy-turvy world and that's the point where I too will say that I got a little bit of uh, a sense of wait what now (laughs) but um but I I found myself willing to just kind of sit in the uh sit with the questions to sit with the oh my gosh this is capturing if not the fact of what losing everyone around you to mysterious diseases not or not even necessarily mysterious but depressingly commonplace diseases does to you um then it at least captured the feeling, if not the fact. I don't know that that makes a lot of sense, and I may be as obtuse at this point as the play is. But. Yeah,
2: well, as as I mentioned, I, I, I certainly understand your perspective, how you, mm-hmm. what this play, this, this play reached out to mm-hmm. you in certain particular ways. But uh, I, I would say, again, that this is not a play about illness or disease. I mean, we, we we even learn very few specifics about what what is ailing these people. So that's that for me is not what the play is about. Um, you know, personally, I, I think it's not a bad play for Halloween with its supernatural <laughs> right. mystery element. But that's not how it's been branded or how it's been presented. Right. Uh, Dado, who directed it, is a very capable veteran director. She has staged the play efficiently and with this wonderful, larger-than-life puppet creation, which is the work of Lolly Extract and Mm -hmm. the Jabberwocky Marionettes. Yes, this wonderful puppet figure. Uh, And Dado has staged that, uh, uses the puppet for the supernatural figure. You know, but I don't think she's, for me, brought any greater clarity to the work, despite the efficiency of her staging, I think the play is a dark comedy. Maybe I'm wrong, and I wish dado had brought out more of the play's literally absurdities and and maybe humor. It's a good ensemble company. Many of them uh, veterans of a Red Orchid. Uh, among them, Travis A. Knight, who was a Red Orchid ensemble member is the standout actor as Gabe, which certainly is the central role in the play. And uh, Travis Knight is a very tall, towering figure, and he plays uh, Gabe as a kind of a gentle, passive
4: mm-hmm. giant. And I quite enjoyed uh, Megan Draca. Uh, uh, I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. As Hiker Ampersand. You know, one of the other kind of confounding things is that the characters refer to each other mostly by their first name. So it's a little unclear you know, what the pronouns are, actually. It, just as it's unclear what their relationship with each other might be. But uh, there are some, I think, uh, some darkly comic performances along the way. And I was really taken to by Emily Maureen Hansen as Summer Ampersand, the youngest member of the family who is the one who has this vision of the dark creature and repeats this poem that apparently has come to her uh, through the creature. Was the creature is a manifestation of a brain tumor or... Actually, is like the family's weird karma tracking them down through the ages. Again, I, I, I leave that to people to draw their own conclusions. But yeah. uh, I did find that the the atmosphere itself, um, including Grant Grant Sabin's set, uh, which you know, feels like it's taking place in like somebody's rec room. That had, you know, I mean, it's as a sign of how far along, you know, how far down the family has fallen. A portable commode is being used as an armchair. So that tells you a lot about, you know, the the intersection of illness and everyday life for this family.
2: I mean, they actually seem to live in not all precisely in the same place, but the, 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 there's only one setting used, and it's a little bit, uh, you know. A notch or two above uh, you know, what we might conceive of as a as a as a okay. trailer park home, but it's uh, a number of notches below comfortable, uh, cozy, tasteful middle class.
0: Mixed thoughts about a Red Orchid Theater's world premiere. The Malignant ampersands, It continues through November twenty seventh. Uh, a quick note about the uh, magnificent Ambersons. Uh, Carrie, you were saying, you know, there was all this mystery, and I'm a pretty big Orson Welles fan, so I think I read somewhere that uh, the studio, you know, destroyed the the you know the film. Right. So that's like lost. But um, decades later, he was still trying to raise money. He was going to reshoot it with the uh, living actors. And, right. Kind of right. I think there was a,
4: something several years ago. They thought perhaps there had been some reels that were actually sent to him in Brazil on
0: oh, yeah. that other film, and right.
4: you know. So, I and I haven't read anything recently, but yeah, I think it is. You know, sadly, you know, lost forever to us. It's still a fine film, even even in its abbreviated version, with some terrific performances. Again, I would agree with Jonathan. Its connection to the world of Brett Nebu's play is tenuous at best and maybe that's just sort of a bait and switch to get people in the theater but uh,
2: of course we all could just go back to the original 1918 Booth Tarkington novel right,
0: and then we'd right. know everything <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah.
4: You know, uh, the great Tarkington Renaissance will be upon us any day now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to move on to some other local theater news. The glitterati of the local theater scene gathered um, a few miles from where I live at the uh, Drury Lane Theater <laughs> in Oakbrook for the um, Jeff Equity Awards, which I believe probably the first time they did the award ceremony in person in a, a few years. Right. A lot of the plays that were nominated and, and won this past Monday night were plays that uh, the Dueling Critics reviewed here on the the program. Did either of you uh, attend the ceremony? I
2: did
4: not. It's a little bit of a haul for me. <laughs> yeah.
2: I did not attend the ceremony either, but I, I, I followed it as it were. This was the 54th Annual mm-hmm. Joseph Jefferson Awards, and you are correct, Gary, this is the first time in uh, two years that that they've held the ceremony live, as they typically do in the autumn. So, um, And there were uh, 38 awards handed out in a number of categories, which were shared between 17 theaters, which is really a very, very decent mm-hmm. split. And they range from some of our very smallest uh, equity theater companies, such as About Face Theater Company, Congo Square, 16th Street Theater, all of which are companies that Carrie and I have talked about from mm-hmm. time to time. They range from some of the small companies up to the big Tony Award winning companies such as the Goodman Theater and the Steppenwolf Theater, um, not to mention musical theater houses like the Marriott Theater and Drury Lane. Oh,
4: and Paramount, away, was, uh, yep. Paramount yep. was the big winner. Went in Kinky Boots was one of the first productions I think you and I saw live when Theater Returned last fall, John. I mean, they home. Six awards, I believe. Right. Yeah. Kinky
2: Boots and Paramount Theater were the single largest winner as a production. It won six awards. Uh, Good Night Oscar, the play about Oscar Levant, that had its world premiere at the Goodman Theater, won five awards. Uh, speaking about a red orchid, which we've just we've mm-hmm. just dismissed in a way, a red orchid. <laughs> or- but we did review a play of theirs last year, The Moors. Which we liked very much, Mm -hmm. and which won five Jefferson Awards. Mm -hmm. And uh, Porchlight Music Theater won four awards for its uh, wonderful review, Blues in the Night, which we also talked about. So it was a really, really good mix of theater companies and productions,
4: really. And I I was happy that Teatro Vista, somewhere over the rainbow, which I'm sorry, somewhere over the border, (laughs) um, which I think I reviewed by myself while you were out of town, Jonathan, also took. Took some awards. It's a larger play than a larger you know, uh, enterprise than Teatro Vista has done in the past. And I, from, my, from, from my perspective, it was quite successful. I was also interested, and I wondered what you might think about this. This year is sort of a nod to the fact that coming back from pandemic, people are doing shorter seasons or fewer productions, as a, I assume a cost cutting measure. They had a special category or some categories to recognize short-run production. Now, I don't know that they've made any decisions about whether this is something that will continue. I actually thought that was kind of a nice thing to do, and I wonder if it is something they might consider continuing at least for a while. You know, many smaller companies, particularly those that are operating on equity contracts, because even the lowest-tier you know, equity contracts, I think, it has some costs associated with it. Um, I-, I wonder if that might be a way to encourage... Uh, more attention being paid to some of the smaller or emerging companies. Uh, some of the winners in those categories uh, were not shows that we covered, but About Face Theatres, uh, world premiere of the Magnolia Ballet. Um, I think that there were also some um, uh, an award for theater with that did a holiday run of Who's Holiday in the design category. And to me, it's just another way to spread the love, but I don't know how you feel about that, Jonathan.
2: No, I, think, I thought it was a very, very good idea. Listeners should know that in order to qualify for an equity uh, Jeff Award. Uh, there typically is a minimum run of uh, mm-hmm. I think at least three weeks and/or 21 performances, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know the problem is that the Jeff Awards Committee is a sizable committee, and there has to sure. be enough time from the opening night. If a if a show is nominated by the the opening night uh, Jeff members who attend mm-hmm. and, and nominate it or not. There has to be time for the other members to attend, and with the short runs, there often is not time. So I don't know how they handle the logistics this year, but if they had a system that worked, I think it would be a wonderful addition uh, and expansion to their coverage if they were able to include the short runs, things that run uh, uh, less than twenty-one performances.
4: And, and, and they just have shown uh, themselves flexible. I mean, they have—they now have the, the equity awards are split between large and mid Which, at least for productions, what I think is yeah. interesting is that they've gone to uh, gender-neutral performance categories in the last few years. Um, right. Which there was some concern with that shut out, you know, people of. You know, would that make it less likely for people to get honored? I personally, having seen both these shows, was very tickled that not only did Sean Hayes who plays Oscar Levant and is opening on Broadway in Goodnight Oscar in April, got Best Performance, but so did uh, Cassie Slaughter-Mason, who was in a lovely show that I don't think we reviewed, but I did happen to see it at Raven, called The Luckiest. Um, so it's kind of yes. nice that you can have somebody from, you know, the Broadway-bound, you know, glittery hit, to a small, really heartfelt, beautiful production like that one, on on the same footing.
2: Yes, the Jeff Committee has responded to some of the the changing nature of mm-hmm. theater in Chicago post-pandemic and to the just ch- changing nature of, of our social conventions mm. uh, in general throughout uh, across right. the board, not just in right. theater.
4: And, so, and of course, uh, well done, uh, well yeah, yeah. and I would say uh, we also have to give a shout-out to Chuck Smith, the longtime uh, director, it's such an influence, uh, particularly for black directors and artists in Chicago, founder of the, Chicago, the now defunct Chicago Theater Company, On the south side, he's been at the Goodman forever. He just directed a show that I saw with Impact called Ride or Die, which I quite like. I think he's 85 years young and still kicking it, and he got a Lifetime Achievement Award, which was so well-deserved. Right. The
2: Jeff Jeff Committee typically in a year will present one or two, they call them, special awards for Lifetime Achievement. And the wonderful Chuck Smith was indeed the worthy recipient this year. He is a longtime member of the Artistic Collective of the Goodman Theater. Mm -hmm. But as you noted, he also has a history as a theater founder. He's founded at least two, if not three, theater companies in Chicago. Right. A noted director of, of, of national renown. Uh, I remember some years ago talking with Chuck, and he talked about how how his introduction to theater was seeing an aunt of his who was an actor in one of the seminal black theater companies in Chicago, a company going back to the 1930s at least. Um, and so he represents a, a, a generational mm-hmm. tradition uh, within the Chicago's theater community, uh, as well as within his family. And that's always wonderful to see uh, how it's uh, mm-hmm. you know, played forward that way.
0: Right. It sounds like it was a, a fun night out at Oak Brook. I read that Sean Hayes uh, was there in person to to pick up his award, which was very cool. One last thing I wanted uh, to touch on this week, because we were running short on time. Last week, uh, Writers' Theater announced who its next artistic director is going to be. They made it official last week, and they named theater artist Braden Abraham.
2: Who comes to Writers' Theater from the Seattle Repertory Theater, where he's been for 20 years, a number of them as artistic director. On paper, anyway, it seems like a really, really good choice to me. Uh, the Seattle Rep is one of the largest uh, institutional not-for-profit theaters in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a leadership theater. And while they do a mixed repertory of plays, they are particularly known for their new works and uh, Certainly, Writers Theatre is a similar mix of different literary styles of plays, among them a number of new works. So it seems right. like a good fit.
4: It absolutely does. Yeah, they noted in the press release, as you probably just also noted, Jonathan, that um, Abraham has a particular, you know, uh, push has been making a particular push for new commissions and new work. And so I think, in that sense, it's a, you know, it, it, it's a it's an interesting choice. Um, I had wondered, as I'm sure you did, if they would pick somebody within. The Chicago community, but clearly they they went they went nationwide, uh, and so now I guess the question for Seattle is who's going to take over at Seattle Rep. But we'll leave that to the critics there too mm-hmm. to, to talk about. I, my understanding is Abraham will be in place in February. Bobby Kennedy, who has been serving as the interim artistic director and was the director, I think, of New Works and Dramaturgy, I'm told he will continue in some role that has yet to be determined. At writers and, uh, and and hopefully you know that his his holding down the fort over these past several months will be will be uh, you know amply rewarded for him as well.
2: Well, one would hope perhaps they'll name him associate artistic director right. and and give mm-hmm. him some directing responsibilities. Uh, yes, Braden Abraham will take over in February uh, and we'll choose the next year's season, which really means we're not going to see his stamp on things till. Uh, the fall of of next year, 2023, the 2023-2024 season. Um, He will have some work to do besides just the artistic responsibilities. He's going to have to work to rebuild the live theater audience. Uh, Writers' Mm Theater is not the only theater that has lost numbers of of butts in seats Mm -hmm. uh, in the post-pandemic period. He's going to, have to rebuild an audience, and he's going to have to meet and get to know the donors, uh, individual and foundation and corporate, and the subscribers, and uh, and uh, and and make sure that they understand uh, his uh, artistic ideas going down the road.
0: Okay, lots covered this week, Carrie, Jonathan. Thanks so much.
4: Oh, you're, you're welcome, Gary. Welcome.
0: I'm Gary Zydek, you're listening to The Arts Section.
1: It's, to midnight, and something evil's in the dark.
0: it's going to be a Halloween happening this coming Saturday when the 8th Annual Arts in the Dark Halloween Parade steps off from State and Lake. Over 70 organizations and 2,500 performers will be part of this year's event. Unlike some other parades, it's all thrill, no fill. There aren't any political candidates or corporate floats. The event is meant to be a celebration of Chicago's creative spirit. Presented by the nonprofit organization Luma 8 in the city of Chicago, the parade's lineup includes the Art Institute, Joffrey Ballet, the Chicago Latino Theater Alliance, and several other high profile organizations. I recently caught up with the parade's artistic director and the former Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events Commissioner, Mark Kelly, to talk about this year's Arts in the Dark Halloween Parade. Before we get into the the parade, I just wanted to check in and see what you've been up to since uh, you stepped away from your uh, D-Case commissioner duties about a year ago. What have you been up to?
3: I've been busy. I'm doing pro bono consulting for a lot of arts groups, so... Um auditorium theater and deeply rooted and trinity dance and facets and um you know i'm arts in the dark i'm spending lots of time on that and so still mucking around in in the arts but it's all uh, you know it's all on my schedule it's what i want to do so a couple hours a day um which is keeping me busy and then i'm back to drumming every day and Taking lessons and getting serious about my drumming again, and biking oh. up a storm. I think I'm gonna by December. I will have done over 4,000 biking miles. Wow! So, so I feel so busy, but it's it's been fun. It's been great.
0: I know one of the organizations that you work with is Luma Eight. So for folks maybe not familiar with the organization, how would you describe what they do?
3: illuminate uh, it's a cultural nonprofit, and they're just trying to bring uh, cultural joy to the streets. So a pretty unusual mission. But you, you see, the, I, the Arts in the Dark is a perfect example of their work. Um, it was my vision that created the Arts in the Dark, but without Luma 8 as the producers of the event, it, it wouldn't exist. In Arts in the Dark, it's very cool. Uh, just last week, a U.K. publication picked it as one of the six best Halloween events in, in the world. Wow. And this, this, I mean, this was with, you know, some of the big, big guns. And so the, the parade has come a, a long way. And I'm so thankful that Luma 8 produces it. But, you know, come October 29th, You know, weather permitting, I I think we're hoping for an audience of maybe 100,000, and it's going to be a celebration of Chicago's cultural landscape. It's over 80 arts organizations and neighborhood cultural groups and creative youth groups all coming together with spectacle and puppetry and, and lights and fire and theater music and dance and it, it's, it's it's in its eighth year. It really has come into its own. It's a parade, and, and it's very mission-driven. We don't, uh, you know, so many, I, I, I'm sorry to say this, but so many Chicago parades lack creative inspiration. Um, I, I think parading is a great, one of the great, Creative forms, but in Chicago, it's a lot of waiting, politicians, and sponsorship floats and manufactured floats, and 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 the artistry and the creative potential of parade seems to get lost. We're we're trying to go back to the heart of what trading parading has been historically. I, I remind people, Leonardo da Vinci's his day job was a spectacle maker for for parades. So it's going to be a great evening and. Um, and in this, I, th- I hope what we do is celebrate Chicago's cultural landscape, because we can talk about that landscape, but it really, people live in their own skins, they're in their own organizations, they're, they're, they're with, their, with their own genres, and, and rarely do does everyone come together in this. On the, uh, at the street level like we will do on next Saturday, well you know whether it's deeply rooted dance or joffrey dance or the auditorium theater open the circle the footwork people the southside jazz coalition the gospel singers it's just it's gonna be a really fun and and purposeful night
0: and so uh, this is year eight and you know the last two years because of the the pandemic like things are A little foggy for me, so did Arts in the Dark take place these past two years?
3: It took place last year, so we, we had one year off, and actually even that year we did something because it was right at the height of the pandemic and no parade was taking place in Chicago, so we created the Upside Down Halloween Parade. It was really directed more at kids. It was during the day. It was in Washington Park, and cars drove down beautiful Russell Drive, and then there was like 30 arts organizations performing for them, so that's hence the Upside Down. But then last year, we said, okay, wait, we're going to invite all the kids of Chicago to march in a parade with their costumes, and we kept all the performers performing for them. We never actually took a break, but Arts in the Dark, in downtown on State Street, took off a year, and now we're back at it. And I, I'll tell you, there, there isn't anyone who goes to that parade who doesn't come out of it with a huge smile, because there's a lot of attitude. It's it's sort of trying to bring a little bit of Mardi Gras and that great parade sort of thinking and experience to Chicago. And and I, I, I say that with all due respect. We're, we're not there, uh, but... We've come a long way, and so many of the neighborhood cultural groups and arts organizations have learned over the years, okay, what do you do? How do you, how do you bring creative, creativity to the street as you're moving forward? And it's, it's amazing to see how many groups have just gotten better and better and better each year with their choreography, their music, their costumes, their masks, how they bring light into it. Weather permitting, it's going to be a pretty spectacular evening.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with former Chicago DCASE Commissioner Mark Kelly. He's the artistic director of the 8th Annual Arts in the Dark Halloween Parade that's taking place in Chicago this coming Saturday, October 29th. So the parade's on State Street and moved south from Lake to Van Buren. With these uh, arts organizations, will they be... Stopping to, to perform along the, the route, or is it just a constant march of, of them kind of performing it, along the way? Mix,
3: it's a mix of both, and, and actually because, uh, again, it's dependent on the weather, but if the weather is good, because the north side, the north end of the parade route just gets packed. And so viewing can be sometimes difficult. The further south you go, the crowd is smaller. So that's something for everyone to consider. Um, generally, people are just moving forward, but we have set times where we stop the parade and everyone can then take uh, like a two-minute focus performance before they, they keep moving on. But to give you a sense, there's 30 dance companies. It's a lot of dance, right? And it's it's hip-hop, and it's Clog, cloggers and it's all kinds, just Joffrey Ballet. We have about 20 spectacle groups. So, you know, giant puppets and actually the Art Institute, the union. So the Art Institute staff, both at the school and the museum are coming with a giant lion puppet that they will have created. Lots of unusual, you know, artistic-driven, taking the Halloween and the moment and, and letting their imagination run wild. So it, it's very fast-moving entertainment. It, it, it's scheduled from 6 to 8, probably will go to 8.30 because we have so many. Uh, groups that are participating this year.
0: You're the artistic director for the parade, so when you're working with these organizations, do you give them like a a directive, or do they approach you with different ideas of how they're going to participate?
3: Oh, for every group, it's a a different journey. Some know exactly what they wanted to do, and they were just waiting for this opportunity, and, and, and they've grabbed it. Um, some groups we, we've worked with because what they brought, you know, in, in the first couple of years was sort of a little, a little back to, you know, a typical Chicago Parade. We, we don't want anyone just waving to the audience, something passive like this. It, it's to bring artistry. So how do you bring movement, dance, sound, mask, costumes, lighting, puppetry, spectacle, fire, all of these elements uh, how, do, how do you mix them up and then everyone brings something forward that represents who they are and what they're about? So there's a, a there, there's three ballet folklorico groups based on Mexican dance and pageantry. and they're just stunning. You know it's 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 sort of a mix. Of Day of the Dead, mashing up against Halloween, and then creating something very unique. Uh, the diversity of what we see in the parade is, is also stunning, and, and so it is in the crowd. It's, you know very often the arts become segmented, or it's this crowd or that crowd, this group. You, you see everybody in the parade, and you see everybody uh, in the audience, which which I love. And you know, so like the Auditorium Theater is, uh, they have a ghost tour, and so they're they're bringing on to a float all of the greats that are no longer with us that have performed at the Auditorium Theater. So yeah, we thought that's Franklin, a good idea. James Brown and you know Frank Sinatra. The list goes on and on and on. So uh, you know, it it represents who they are, right? It, their history, and it connects us to that history, but it sounds like it's also just going to be a lot of fun. We, we try to encourage and push. It, it, more than anything, it's been getting people out into the street, and then everyone's learning from everyone else. One of the other parts of this parade that make it magical, it's, it's at night. There's very, very few parades in Chicago at night, and it changes everything, right? Because... Now you're, and especially for Halloween, it's got to be at night. You you you're playing with the fading light and the approaching darkness of winter, and and, and that's so much in the spirit of Halloween. It's 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 wrestling with the spirits. It's taking on personas. It's masks and costumes. It it, all of that needs uh, darkness to to play with and
0: to wrestle with. The parade steps off at uh, 6 p.m. And then just uh, looking to the the future, I remember when uh, Arts in the Dark launched uh, eight years ago, I guess, yeah. And then, you know, every year since. And then, of course, we had the... Uh the weird pause because of the the pandemic. But here we are back, uh, just looking ahead. Is this something that you think is going to continue to expand? Is that your hope, that it continues to grow and becomes even a, a bigger event?
3: You know, I, I want it to become one of the great parades of this country and, and even the world. And we still have a ways to go. but um, and, and it's a great parade because it's all about the creative spirit and artistry coming to the street. Um, So, by the way, we have lots of politicians who would love to be at this parade. Uh Uh-uh, ain't gonna happen. We have lots of sponsors who wanted to sponsor floats, saying, you know, so-and-so loves the artists and the arts. Uh -uh. Uh-uh. They can sponsor a group. They can be, uh, you know, we're we're very thankful that Barry Calabo is a sponsor of the parade, but we want the parade to stay... Pure and mission-driven, and, and truly be a celebration of of the cultural life of the city, but it's cultural life with a small C, right? It's it's not trying to. It's it's you know, art, art very often gets caught with this sort of hierarchy, and then or you know, it's sort of forgotten. We're we're sort of creating this even playing field where renowned cultural institutions are on a per, the parade route with uh, creative youth groups that are showing what they've got. And uh, it's fun to see the, the mashup of, of all that. I, I was just on television this morning where there's a uh, this great dance instructor, uh, Jasmine Cooper, from the South Side. She's at Wrightwood Elementary, and she's been working with her students as a dance instructor. They did a Thriller video and it has literally over 25 million social media views. It became like a really big thing a couple of years ago, and she's taken these young kids and really formed them into this cohesive group. That you know, you don't you look at them and think, oh, you don't think, oh, they're young. No, you think, wow, they're they're really bringing it, and they're going to be in the parade. They belong in the parade, and, that, and then and, and then they're so excited to have this is the first time they've had a public platform. They've been on social media, but for these kids to be on State Street and and being treated as equaled with some renowned cultural institutions, um, pretty cool. I should say with all this, that the city is a big supporter of uh, this. These, these, both of these parades are the marquee events for Halloween, and, and, and Mayor Lightfoot and the city have been very supportive of these of these parades, and they're very much a partnership with the city, but everyone agrees. Our our parades will stay very mission-focused at what's presented on the street.
0: Mark, it's always a pleasure to talk. I appreciate you making time.
3: Gary, my pleasure to talk to you. Be well.
0: That was Mark Kelly, the former commissioner of Chicago's Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, is the artistic director of the 8th annual Arts in the Dark Halloween Parade. It's set to take place Saturday, October 29th from 6 to 8 p.m. The parade will start at State and Lake, head south on State, and end at Van Buren. It's free to watch. You can find more information at artsinthedark.com. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture by visiting the program's website over at theartsection.org. There, you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the art section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Hope you get to enjoy some of this nice weather this weekend. Thanks for listening. Be a single thing a
2: Whispering his name through this disappearing land,
1: but hidden in his coat is a red rag.
3: You feel like an in-